0: Uh, Mike, is Mike in here? Did I see Mike? Well, gee, I think Mike covered the person of Christ last time, and this morning we're going to look at the work of Christ, and uh, as I've told you before, this is more of a um, an interactive time. If you have questions or you um, think that something would serve us, please just raise your hand and let me know. Just raise your hand and let me know, because I, because of my, uh, my hearing, I can't ever tell where sound is coming from, so... Just let me know that. We're looking at the work of Christ. While we're getting set, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going we're to do some high altitude observations. Then we're going to dial in specifically into this text. The work of Christ. We often talk about the life and the work of Christ. Or the person and the work of Christ. When we say his work, what, what does that mean? If... Sometimes I think that we're so dialed into our church language, the way we speak of things in the church that we forget that it might not make as much sense to people who've never heard it before. If you were to tell somebody, "I want to explain to you the work of Christ," it's kind of an odd way of saying it. What that means is, is that what he accomplished by his life and his death. It's what he did for us. Um, we could spend. Dozens and dozens of hours just reading the the extent of the work of Christ. First Peter two twenty four scriptures tell us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and still live and live in righteousness. What did he do? We could go look at Romans chapter three, verses ten and twelve, and find out that we had a serious need for his work. Uh, we were. There's none righteous, none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have become useless. No one does good, not even one. So there was a great need for Christ. So when you're talking about the work of Christ, it's not just the work for the people who receive it or the people who want it. It's the work that's sufficient for anyone who would believe. John eight thirty four. We're all slaves to sin. And the result of that is death, James 1.15 says. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the, the desires of our own flesh. John uh, 8 says that we did the deeds of our father, the devil, who's a liar from the beginning. We are those under wrath and sons of disobedience, according to Ephesians chapter 2. So it's, it's not, uh, you almost have to do a study of anthropology of, the, of the, the sinfulness of man to really understand the fullness of the work of Jesus. Um, but what I want to do specifically is talk about one passage that, it doesn't summarize all of his work, but it certainly gives us the quickest traction to understand that. And that is 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. I call this Peter's John 3.16. Um, th- this is one of those epic passages. If you haven't memorized this passage, 1 Peter 3, 18, can I encourage you, can I beg you, study this with your will your family, talk about this at your breakfast or dinner table, make this a point of memory. It's very simple, it's very easy to remember, to memorize, but it grabs in one concentrated dose the essence of the work of God in Christ on the cross. 1 Peter three eighteen for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The the, the, um, summary of all of Christ's work is this, that he would do what was necessary to bring us to God. God. By the way, that, that assumes that we're alienated from God. All that that we read a minute ago, the being dead and trespasses of sins, being a child of wrath, it assumes that we need to be brought to God. Then he gives us the essence of the atonement, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. As I said, there are a lot of texts you can go to that talk about the work of Christ. But this one in just a few phrases really isolates the, the intent and the extent of what he does. Um, what I'd like to do then is just give you a list, if I can. If you want to take notes, that's fine. If you want to just listen, that's fine. Of uh, Half a dozen. Let me give you six features of Christ's work. Six features of Christ's work. And they're right here in this passage. The first is this. An atoning death. Atoning death. A-T-O-N-I-N-G. Atoning death. For, and sometimes you can translate that word for as since or because, I would translate it there. Since Christ also died for our sins. Died means he suffered a horrific death. Christ died for sins. As soon as Peter said this and to looking at what Jesus did, it would have drummed up in his Jewish reader's mind the entire sacrificial system because they had a system that they engaged in over and over and over week after week, day after day, certainly year after year in the, um, the Day of Atonement where an animal would die in their place. <clears throat> now, let's just kind of draw aside for a second here and if you have questions on this, please stop me. I'm gonna ask you a a tricky question. Let's say that you're all in your ordination. Those of you who are in seminary, this will show up in your ordination, okay? I'd love to ask a guy who's about to graduate, about to go on his way, some questions that I think probably needs that handle on. How would you answer this question? Did the Old Testament saints, were the Old Testament saints, was their sin atoned for Covered up, forgiven, because of the sacrifices they were offering. Now, I could say, no, because of the book of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10. There's never any any atonement outside the blood of Christ, right? Yet, in Leviticus 16, it says, I don't know, 15 times, this sacrifice atones for your sin, so I could say, well, yes. Did, how do you answer that? Well, that's important when we come to Christ dying for our sins. Here's the reality without getting into a long um, um, explanation. First of all, in the minds of the people at that time, that's exactly what it did. They were taking God at his word. God said, I will, I will, I will, I will accept the sacrifice and the death of this animal instead of you. They have atonement. And they, they did that. that. That was fine. We know from Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats never actually did, that God in his infinite, inexplicable work retrofitted the blood of Christ back then and they didn't even know it. But that's the key, that they just didn't know it. I don't think that when, when the Old Testament saint came to sacrifice the goat or the, the lamb that he was thinking one day the second person of the Trinity will become a man and live in Nazareth and will grow up and die a horrific death just outside of Jerusalem, on the mount called Calvary, on the place of the skull. He will rise from the dead three days later. I don't think they had that full understanding. They were simply taking God at his word. So I bring up, up the, uh, now did that, so what, what caused their forgiveness of sins? Justifications by grace through faith. They had faith in what God said. God said, do this, I will atone for your sins. They did it, he atoned for their sins. In Hebrews, we find out that God, in his infinite wisdom, somehow made all that under the blood of Christ. And if you, want me to, if you want to ask me how that works, let me give you three words. I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a wonderful mystery. It's an amazing mystery. Um, but all of that idea comes in when it says Christ died for our sins. Because up until Jesus came, the only death for sins was, were animals. So this brings in the entire sacrificial system and says that Jesus is now, according to Hebrews 10, Hebrews 9 and 10, he's now the final sacrifice, the last sacrifice, the the, the only sacrifice ever needed. Jesus died for sins. Listen to Acts 2.22. Men of Israel... deserve to die less than Jesus but by God's predetermined plan by God's grace and mercy he ordained that system if if I can just have a, a, a devotional kind of aside with you i am i am never i never run out of amazement by the the oddness of the gospel And what I mean by oddness is who would invent? Look at all the mystery religions of Babylon. Look at all of the the Greco-Roman religions in the the Pantheon, the Parthenon. Look look at all of the religion that man has made up. There's nothing, nothing like the system, if I can call it a system, where God becomes a man in, in a mysterious trifurcation of the Trinity. The Father then pours out his wrath on the Son, who's beloved and also a member of the Godhead, uh, there's nothing parallel to that. When you think about that, you just have to stand back and say, what a God. Who would invent, no earthly mind would ever invent a scheme like that. He died for our sins. This Friday, we're gonna be coming back for our Good Friday service. Um, and, and concentrating on that. It's one of my favorite times of the year to just take an evening and think about the reality of the God man. Sometimes I think we spend more time proving God's deity, uh, proving Christ's deity, than we do justifying his humanity. He was a man, fully man, he was a human. And with that, he died instead of us and for us. It was atoning, an atoning death. Secondly, we're looking at his, his work. It was a sufficient sacrifice. Remember, this is all in the, in the parlance of, a, uh, of the sacrificial system. A sufficient sacrifice. Just this little phrase, once for all. Once for all. The writer of the Hebrews makes this, this point in 727, 912. Um, 9, 23 to 28, 10, 10, where it says over and over and over that Christ died how many times? Once. It was done. How many times did they do the sacrificial system? Weekly, monthly, annually. Um, every seven years, every, every 49 years, every 50 years, they had all these sacrifices they had to do over and over and over. They were exhausted by these sacrifices. The temple was a bloody place. They actually had, I don't know if you've seen any of the diagrams, they actually had um, uh, uh, pipes and plumbing for the amount of blood that will flow off the temple because of the sacrifices. Over and over and over. Peter makes the point that Christ died once for all. Writer of the Hebrew says the same thing. He died once for all. I, I think I've shared with some of you before the first time that my wife and I uh, went to Italy. We were, I was doing a conference and she actually uh, was working in the kitchen, which was a blessing to her because she brought home some amazing recipes. Um, just invite yourself over for um, Boscaiola. That's what it is. Kim, are you in here right now? Yeah, it's delicious, isn't it? Except, no mushrooms. Right. No mushrooms. Um, she likes it with mushrooms, but that's for when well, we can talk about the fall next hour. Um, uh, I remember we were, we were. It was the first time we had gone into. Vatican and St. Peter's, and we were with David, our Standridge, our um, um, friend and translator. He was taking us around, and we were walking around. And if you, I don't know if you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica, but there are dozens and dozens of of these little bitty, you know, alcoves that you can go in that, that will seat eight or ten people. And there's constantly over and over priests in there doing the mass. We we came right at the right time, and David said, "I'm gonna." Look, he's about to um, do the Eucharist. I want to translate this for you. And remember, Kim, he held held up the bread. and He said, this is exactly what what the translation was. This is the body of Jesus Christ crucified again for your sins. And he broke it. And I remember looking over at my, my sweet bride who was just weeping because they... They re, in their mind, Jesus needs to be re-crucified every mass, every week, every service. Peter says, no, he died once, once for all. Brother Hebrews says, then he sat down, meaning he was done. It was a sufficient sacrifice that never had to be repeated. That was his work. Thirdly, it was an unthinkable substitution. His work was an unthinkable substitution. This, this passage just keeps exploding with deeper, deeper theology. The just for the unjust. Let me say it as clearly as I can. The crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ was the greatest injustice in the history of the world. The whole sacrificial system pointed toward this substitution, but no one would have imagined the cross. And I go back again to, um, we've talked about this before, in John <clears throat> where John the Baptist is baptizing and um, his cousin Jesus is coming to be baptized. He says, I'm not even worthy to, to untie your, your sandals and it makes this great acclamation of humility. But remember what he says to the people standing Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now this this whole idea of the Lamb of God brings us back again into innocence and injustice. God knew Sounds, I don't mean to sound trite when I say this. God knew exactly what he was doing when he chose a, a lamb. And if you couldn't afford that, a goat um, for the day of atonement and the sacrificial system. And the reason is, it is such a picture, a visual living image of, of innocence. Um, and remember, this wasn't a full grown sheep. This was a lamb. This was a, in our, in our parlance, this was a puppy. This was a, a small, innocent little creature. And remember, uh, Exodus 12 is 12. Um, uh, you were to bring the, the lamb in for five days before you killed it. Very interesting. You bring it in your house for five days. Why? Because there would be an attachment made to this little lamb. And then at the end of that five-day period, the father would slay the lamb. He would slice its throat right in front of the, the family, the little kids. This wasn't G-rated. G-rated. And they would, they would, I mean, this was literally a moment, what, what have you done with Fluffy? And his explanation was, this is what was to happen to us. But God has given us a substitute, the just for the unjust. And in that picture was the innocent for the guilty. The lamb didn't do anything wrong. Hadn't done anything to anyone. That's the picture that John picks up. The lamb of God, And then he says this, which had not been said anywhere else in the Old Testament, who takes away the sins, not of the sacrificer, but of what? Of the world. It's a sufficient sacrifice, an unthinkable substitution, that the innocent would die in place of the guilty. Romans 5, we've studied it over and over. God doesn't love like we love. We love to talk about the wartime, you know, um, situations where someone died and saw the grenade and... God doesn't love like that. He doesn't jump on the grenade for his friends. He does that for his enemies. He does that for those who have rebelled against him from birth. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. An unthinkable substitution. One of my favorite memories was um, we were driving with, with Luke, my oldest, when he was oh, probably six or seven. And uh, we were talking a little bit about the gospel and uh, the you know, death and why did he die. It was, it was kind of things we had talked about before. But I'll never forget this moment of epiphany when he, when he said, that wasn't fair. We get Jesus' righteousness and he takes our sin. That that's not fair for, for Jesus. And he got it are you glad God's not fair? If God were fair, we would all be in hell today. He's just. Just is different than fair. We're glad that he's just. We've looked at Job 9 over and over. Job cries out for a mediator and God gives us the man, Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. An unthinkable substitution. The innocent for the guilty. The just for the unjust. That's... That's part of his work. Number four, a redemptive purpose. A redemptive purpose so that he might bring us to God. Wow. You could meditate on that for a long time and not get to the end of the implications and the wonder and the grace and the the amazement so that He might bring us to God. As I said, the assumption is we were separated from God, or He wouldn't have to bring us to. Secondly, that God is not findable without Christ. He's the one who escorted us to God. We have a heavenly escort, an exclusive savior, that He might bring us to God. It's a redemptive purpose. Probably the, the most difficult part of evangelizing people, in, at least in Johnson County, is that few people think that they're lost from God. Few people think that they can't find their way to God. That they don't need God. They have nice houses, they have cars and boats and debt and all sorts of things. To get people to the point where they realize you, you are lost, We use that word so often, but think of it in this context. You're lost. You cannot find your way to God without Christ. He died once for all that he might bring us to God. That's his work. Number five. An acceptable, this is our big word, propitiation. Propitiation. It's a big theological word we've studied before. It says, having been put to death in the flesh. A propitiation means an appeasement. It's to make the gods in the ancient world happy. And in 1 John, uh, Christ is our propitiation, which means that God, God the Father, this is sometimes hard for us to to understand. God the Father is a wrathful deity. He's a wrathful, angry father for good reason. I just heard R.C. Sproul this week an interview with him where he said that the church has lost all preaching of the wrath of God. May God forbid that we ever do that here. We are indeed sinners in the hands of an angry God. The anger of God demands that the execution of his judgment end in death. The wages of sin is... Death. But here, look at this acceptable propitiation. This acceptable appeasement of his anger and wrath. Having been put to death in the flesh. This is go back to the, goes back to the sacrifice and substitution. He died for us. Look just for a moment over. It's hard not to study the book of Hebrews when you look at this passage. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Why does it say he died in the flesh? It could have said he died, and that would have been sufficient, right? Why does Peter go to the extent to say he died in the flesh? It's really interesting. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the what? Same. He died in the flesh... Because we're in the flesh, now he goes on to say this, that through death, that dying in the flesh, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free, throw, free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like people, like his brethren in all things, including being a human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see what what the writer says there? His death in the flesh is associated with his propitious work, meaning he died as an absorption of the rightful fury and anger of God for the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered... He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It was an acceptable propitiation. God said, I'll accept that Jesus is the absorption of my wrath and anger in the place of those who believe. And then sixth, looking at his work, is a resurrected Hope, a resurrected hope. This is interesting. Right next to each other he says he died in the flesh. And then he says, but made alive in the spirit. There's so much going on here. Um, they saw Jesus die. They put Jesus in a grave. They saw him taken off the cross. They knew his body was wrapped in, in uh, um, uh, those, those linen cloths and placed in a grave. And the stone rolled. They saw that he was dead in the flesh. But, Peter says... Being dead in the body doesn't mean being dead, absolutely. There's a lot of insight in that for our own resurrection, right? Is it, to be dead in the body doesn't mean that you're gone. Paul told the Corinthians, this is, it's a tent. Isn't that interesting imagery? Our bodies are tents. Does anyone, well, I guess there are some people, but does anyone want to make your permanent abode in a tent? I like camping. I like camping when I'm hunting. But I also love to come home, have a shower, have air conditioning, have heat. I love having out. This is a tent. This is temporary. It's just temporary. So when we die in the spirit, in the flesh, we can be made alive in the spirit. And that's what Jesus gives us here is a resurrected hope. Hope. Romans 8, 11, if him, but if uh, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Death is not the final victor. It's the simplicity of the gospel. So that's, that's what Jesus does in his work. Um. Now we could go on and on about other things that he does and the implications of that. But I think suffice it to say that that one verse kind of opens the window and says, see what Christ did instead of you, for you, on behalf of you? You see what he did on behalf of God? Um, One of the things that's curious is why one of the things that I'm, I'm most interested in having discussions, uh, if, if I'm allowed to, in, in heaven, is to ask a member of the Trinity, maybe I'll just know, but is to say, why, why three decades? Why three decades? In other words, Bethlehem, Herod, narrative, Egypt, back up to Nazareth, 30 years later, Nazareth. What happened in all that time? Well, one insight we have is that Jesus lived to fulfill all the law, to fulfill all righteousness, meaning in every category where God could be obeyed, he, he did. Um, he was faithful. Hebrews 4 talks about that, that he was tempted in all ways like we were but yet didn't sin. So he was storing up, reservoiring all of the righteousness not just of who he was in terms of his 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 um, ontology, his entity, who he was because being God, but also by his obedience, by being an obedient dependent man who loved God. And all of that righteousness he stored up in those 30 years and he gives to us in exchange for our sin. I mean, if that doesn't amaze you, then you probably ought to read the Bible again. Let me go back to my son. Wait a minute, Dad. He gives me his righteousness, he takes away my sin. Do you understand why the Bible calls the work of Christ good news? It's amazing.